Okay, we're going to come to God's Word, and we're actually going to be in 1 Kings again, but we're going to be two chapters further than we were the last three weeks. So we've been in 1 Kings 19, and we've been looking at the life of Elijah. I'm going to give you a reference point on two of the minor characters in Elijah's story, Ahab and Jezebel. And we're going to get to see a real, I think, clear glimpse at their character, uh, beginning in the first verse of 1 Kings 21. As you head that way, I'll catch you up a little bit here. Uh, We are five weeks into a series on the spiritual practice of silence and solitude in the life of Christians, in the life of people who want to follow Jesus. This morning, we're going to wrap things up. We'll land the plane today. Uh, That doesn't mean we won't come back maybe at certain times and sort of readdress these themes as they arrive in Scripture, but the themed series that focuses on this practice ends this morning. Next week, we'll be back in the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 1, where we were Uh, at the close of September when we started this series, and we'll remain in Mark through the end of this calendar year. So we will acknowledge Advent when we arrive there. The Sunday after Thanksgiving is the first Sunday of Advent. If you don't know Advent, that's okay. It's sort of a liturgical church calendar thing where we talk about uh, and anticipate the arrival of Jesus the four Sundays before Christmas. So that'll begin the Sunday after Thanksgiving, but we're going to stay in Mark, and we're just going to find those themes present in Jesus' life. Uh, And then in the new year, we will be in a five-week series on the spiritual practice of prayer. That's the next practice that we're going to dig into together. Then we'll go back to Mark, and then I'll let you know when we're at that point where we're going to go from there. But I'd like to let you guys be prepared. I hope that you still have your Mark Scripture Journal. If you don't, we have like a hundred or so more. And so we'll have those out next week. If you don't even know what I'm talking about, show up next Sunday morning. We're going to hand you a Scripture Journal. You can use that to take notes if you want to. I think it's a helpful tool. If you don't want to use it, that's totally up to you. But thus far in this series, we've said a lot about the role of silence and solitude in the Christian life. Uh, We've identified first the unique benefits of both silence and solitude. We tried to clarify what purpose do they hold, what role do they play in our time with Jesus. First of all, silence allows our subconscious inner monologue to rise to the surface. We we begin to learn what it is that's running through our heads 24-7 that maybe we're not always aware of. And then the role of solitude to allow the afterimage of human contact to fade, and for us to reach a point where we can stand before God, just us, just uniquely who we are, without all of everybody else's expectations and needs and fears and worries being piled up on our shoulders. From establishing that, we spent the last three Sundays working through uh, part of the life of a man named Elijah, an Old Testament prophet who appears in 1 Kings 17 but really breaks on the scene in the following chapter and then finds himself out in the desert in pursuit of the presence of God in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. And so we camped there for three weeks and we looked at the seven stages of silence and solitude from his life. Physical rest, the wall, sensing your inner reality, naming your inner reality, dialogue with God, transformation, and then coming back changed, returning from that experience a different person and being able to bring more of the presence of God by way of love and justice and mercy and those things into the lives of the people that you may have left behind to pursue silence and solitude. I know from speaking to many of you that a lot of us have been trying silence and solitude. We've been experimenting maybe a little bit. Maybe that seems like a scary word in church context, but what I mean by that is we've been willing and open to engage with God in a way that we maybe haven't prior to this series. I hope that that's been of benefit to you. Um, I think we've been trying to add back in some quiet, add back in a little bit of um, solo, individual time with God that, that maybe is really more of a recapturing for us. If you're anything like me, early in my faith journey with Jesus, this was more normal, it was easier, it was more typical, because I was more radical then. And as we kind of get used to the patterns of our life and we begin to fill our schedules and our days with things that need us and responsibilities, it can be much harder for us to find the time to set aside for God when we maybe prefer to work for God than to be with God. We talked about that a bit last week. So I want to move forward today to a helpful conclusion, and I want to do that by addressing one of the very last statements, really almost the very, very last statement that I made last week about what it means to come back 
changed. Um, I was speaking to you about that, the seventh stage of silence and solitude, and I said this. I said, coming back changed is not just being changed, and it's not just coming back. Those are both things we know how to do. We know how to be different, but stay away from all of our problems and the people who kind of bombard us with their needs. And we know how to come back, but not really be any different, and maybe just go right back into the swing of things, fall right back into the rut that we've run into the road of our life, and not be a different person, not live a different way. Both of these things together are necessary so that you bring your transformation with you for the sake of the people around you. And then I said this, I said, you re-enter the conflict that you left behind with renewed hope. You re-enter the chaos you left behind with a new understanding of who you are and what your responsibilities are. You come back to things exactly as you left them, but now you are different. That's what I said to you last week. I said, you re-enter the same conflict and the same chaos that you left behind. You come back to things exactly as you left them. Now, I was thinking through and praying about that particular statement this week, trying to really dwell on, that's sort of the, the tail end of the last train car in this series, and I knew I wanted to connect into that idea and bring us into the caboose and finish this well. And as I've chewed on that, and after receiving some very helpful feedback, I wanna bring those thoughts to a finer point than I was able to do last week. In general, and considering that right now I'm speaking to a couple of hundred people, each who have their own unique life experience, I do think that that will be the pattern in general for most of us. We will find that as we pursue silence and solitude, as we learn to carve out a spot in the house or a spot in the woods or a place away from people who need us, and we sit there in the quiet with God, that as we're changed, we will change, but our circumstances usually won't. We'll usually re-enter where we left, and we will be equipped better and differently to handle the things that are messy in our lives, but we won't find that those messes have just been magically cleaned up for us while we were in the closet or the garage or the basement talking to God about our problems. If the chaos of your life is created by things that I would consider to be typical in our day and age, if the chaos in your life is derived from you living online all day long, or by your career, or by your pursuit of a degree, or the weight of financial responsibility that you bear in your home or at work, uh, or the needs of your young children, then yes, I would expect that all of those things whether they be obligations or distractions, that they will be there waiting for you when you return to daily life from your time away with God. But here's where I need to make a distinction. If the chaos in your life was created by another person who has taken advantage of you or abused you, whether physical, sexual, emotional, verbal, psychological, spiritual, then no, I don't think that that will be the pattern. I would not expect God, based on the pattern we're gonna see in scripture today, to immediately send you back to the person that has been destroying your life and dehumanizing you and expect you to play a key role in changing their life. Can God use you in your abuser's life? Yes, I think that he will, but I think the role that you play will be much more like that of a truth teller to that person, to give them and confront them with their own reality that they're ignoring, that they won't come to grips with, than it is for you to somehow follow Jesus out of captivity to your abuser, but then right back into it again. Clarification, I think, is necessary here because, and you may not know this, uh, a person is abused in the United States by one of those six categories every nine seconds. I don't know if anyone said that to you lately, but that's the world that we live in. According to the United States Bureau of Justice Statistics, one out of four women and one out of six men have experienced some form of abuse in their lifetimes. And it looks a little bit like that. Of those who are still minors, one out of three female minors and one out of five male minors will experience either physical or sexual abuse before their 18th birthday. So the pattern in American life is actually getting worse as you study younger and younger generations. A fair interpretation of what I said last week at face value might lead some of us, statistically between 20 and 25% of us, into guilt and into shame 
because maybe we haven't played a significant role in our abuser's redemption. Following Jesus is not about guilt, it's not about shame or compulsion or any other kind of moralistic system or law keeping. So I think it's worth the time and attention for me to try to set you free from that expectation a little bit. Because here's what we know. Abuse is black and white, okay? It should never happen, and when it does, it is only the fault of the abuser. That's clear, and that's easy to define and easy to say. But recovery and healing are gray areas. They are complicated, they are nuanced, and they are really impossible for you to imagine unless you've had to walk that road. And I'll say again as a caveat, in case this comes across as a, as a well-meaning preacher trying to dig himself out of a hole or save face, that's not the case at all. Um, I want to say loud and clear that the feedback that I received across this last week was very gentle, and it was helpful, and it was welcome to me. It allowed me to, I think, reach a finer and more careful point than I was able to do in the 50 minutes that we spent together last week. No one attacked me about this, uh, so I didn't have anything to defend, right, because I wasn't under duress myself. And I think in order to show you that this is really the pattern of the Bible, that's where I want you to be in 1 Kings 21. So I said that to you a minute ago. Hopefully you've had a chance to go there. If not, you have about 30 more seconds, and I'm going to try to catch you up quickly on what's gone on in Elijah's life up to this point. Elijah was appointed by Yahweh, uh, who is, which is the name of God the Father. Uh, the name that he shares with Moses in the book of Exodus is Yahweh, and so we call him that here at True North. That's his name. Um, he was appointed by God, our God, the living God, in Exodus, excuse me, in 1 Kings 17. Um, and so he is designed and designated by God to carry the weight of speaking on behalf of Yahweh to the kings of Israel, to the people of Israel. Uh, and in Elijah's lifetime, the king who he interacts with the most is a man named Ahab, and Ahab's wife is a woman whose name is Jezebel. And they are, by every metric that you can think of, serial abusers. All they do is take advantage of everybody around them. They wield every ounce of power that they can scrounge up to make their own life easier, to follow their whims. And oftentimes what they do doesn't even make sense because they're not playing with a full deck. They're, they're themselves living out of their own woundedness and their own fear and their own sort of narcissistic mask that they wear to cover the shame that's deep within them. When Elijah and Yahweh outperform the Syrian idol Baal and his 400 priests at Mount Carmel. This is 1 Kings 18. Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, who loved and worshipped this Baal fertility cult in the Syrian region, she put out a bounty on Elijah. She's very offended that he would have this showdown and then conquer the God that she loved so much. And this is a big part of why he was driven away from civilization into the desert of the Sinai Peninsula, to, to travel for 40 days, to finally come to Mount Horeb, what we also call Mount Sinai, to meet with God. You guys are familiar with that story if you've been here the last three weeks. But what I want you to understand about Ahab and Jezebel is that they are abusive. They do not respect anybody else's personhood. Their preferences become demands of the people around them. They wheel and they deal, they manipulate and destabilize, and they gaslight other people in order to get their way without ever having to take responsibility for the side effects of that lifestyle. So in 1 Kings 21, the author of Kings highlights a textbook case study in narcissistic abuse. We're going to start reading in verse 1 of 1 Kings 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite. Why does that matter? Because a Jezreelite lives in Jezreel. Jezreel is a place where Jezebel, don't get those confused, Jezreel is a city, Jezebel is a woman. Jezebel and her husband Ahab have built sort of like a summer home. Uh, they have a big white palace. Later in 1 Kings 22, the book tells us that it's an ivory palace. It's built out of white stone. It's very kind of gaudy and in your face. And so they summer in this area of the, of the country once in a while. So this is kind of the backyard of their vacation home, okay? Naboth is a Jezreelite who had a vineyard in Jezreel behind the palace of Ahab, who was the king of Samaria, which is also at this stage of the game, Israel. It's this sort of cross-blended group of Israelites and foreigners that we call Samaria. After this, 
after the things that happened in 1 Kings 20, Ahab spoke to Naboth, and he said to him, he made a demand of him, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Now that may seem very fair to you, for a person with money to approach someone who has a resource that they would like to purchase and offer them a fair market value for that land. The difference is you and I don't live in a country that was sovereignly laid out by the God of the universe where there were specific rules given as to what tribes could own what land. If you pay close attention to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, God gave his people very specific rules on what tribes could own what regions and where their boundaries would lie. And he told them not to give that land to other people, not to sell it, not to give it up in war, that that was to be the footprint of his kingdom on earth. Ahab doesn't give a rip. If you've been following along, he does not care what God thinks at all. He isn't even sure that Yahweh exists. Naboth, on the other hand, has a different perspective. He says in verse three, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. In other words, Naboth remembers. He remembers generations prior to this that God has laid out clear expectations and commands on who will own the land and who won't. And Naboth is not some kind of weird nationalist. He's just loyal to Yahweh. His perspective is, if God says this is where I'm supposed to stay, I'll stay here. I trust God. I don't need more than that. I don't need less than that. I am his and he is mine and we're going to be good together just how things are. So Ahab comes in and tries to disrupt that for selfish gain because he wants to grow gourds and carrots and other stuff and it would be nice for him to be able to see his garden from his palace walls. And Naboth is like, no, we're not doing this. That's silly. It's selfish. I can't do this. God is the one who owns all this land. He gave this land to my family, not yours. Talk to him about it, not me. So he says no And look what Ahab does. What a mature man. Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. In other words, pouting and throwing a fit because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Here's what Ahab does about that. He lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and he would not eat. Because somebody killed his kids? No. Because he lost a big battle in a war that was important to his country? No. Because he can't plant vegetables where he wants to. That's the reason that, yeah, you can laugh. It's pretty embarrassing that the king of this nation, one of the most powerful people who therefore holds some of the the greatest responsibility, not only in a kingdom on earth, but in God's kingdom at this stage of the game, is such a pouty baby that he gets told no by a guy who has a good reason. There's logic behind it and history connected to God's promises. And Ahab gets upset and he gets in bed and pulls the covers over his head and won't eat his snack when his maid brings it to him. He's mad. Now, in the rest of this story, because he's a narcissist who's also married to another narcissist, his wife comes along and says to him, oh, sweet baby, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Did something bad happen? And he's like, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. And so she has Naboth killed. Because that's what you do when you're an abuser. You just go, oh, I know how to solve that problem. I'll just remove that obstacle. That's not even a person in my mind's eye. Now, you may know this, you may not. In 2020, a guy named Chuck DeGroat wrote a really fabulous book that I think all of you should read. If you ever plan to have church membership anywhere for the rest of your life, you should read this book. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And it rips the mask off of narcissistic leadership in the church, especially in the church planting world. It's hard to read. It's not fun. It doesn't have good news for you. But I think you as a church member should be equipped to see past the mask of charm and humor and all the different tools that church leaders try to use to manipulate and abuse people in Jesus' name. Um, in his book, he addresses the, the rampant, rampant kind of overtaking of narcissism in the church world, and he describes the typical response of a narcissistic leader like Ahab, almost to a T. He says this, when the narcissistic leader is under attack, 
His response is defensiveness and a victim complex. So that's Ahab. He receives Naboth's rebuttal as a personal affront to himself. Narcissistic leaders experience a victim-martyr-hero identity that postures them as the inevitable targets of frustrated subordinates. This is how a man like Ahab can go to a Naboth, ask a yes or no question, receive a no, which is a fair answer to a yes or no question, and immediately take it deeply personally to the point that he can't sleep and won't eat and pouts in his bed all day. To him, it's a, it's a fair reaction because he's been made the victim, okay? Their persecution complex actually enhances their status among some who view them as a hero for standing tall amid the battle. Now, this is a little bit of insight for you as you read the book of 1 Kings, if you choose to do that. You'll see a guy like Ahab continues to have thousands of followers, people who cannot seem to see past the mask. This is why. They believe his lies that he is somehow a martyr, though none of them have been close enough to him to realize everybody else is really the people who are suffering because of his decisions, not the other way around. The system, in our case in 1 Kings 21, his wife Jezebel, comes to the rescue of the leader at the expense of his victims. The lack of feedback, the fear of disloyalty, and the victim complex, excuse me, complex make it hard to engage, let alone change, this system. This system is alive and well in Israel. This is Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel have been this way and have sort of profligated, if you, if you would, this sort of treatment of people throughout the nation by way of their laws, by embracing Baal, who is himself a God whose system is built on oppressing the weak and giving more power to the strong. Of course they love a God like that. Of course they want to vote in policies that enhance their ability to be narcissistic. They're narcissists. They're serial abusers. All they want to do is take and take and take and take until they die. And they probably don't even think they're going to die because they're so wrapped up in their own self-future. Jezebel, who is Ahab's wife, is an example of what Chuck DeGroat calls a vulnerable narcissist. She coddles and enables Ahab to the point that she eventually has Naboth killed so that Ahab can inherit the land according to the laws of Israel. This is similar, if you're familiar with the story of King David in 2 Samuel 11, who has Uriah the Hittite killed so that David can steal Uriah's wife. Similar abuse of power, similar misunderstanding of self. DeGroat goes on in his book, to say this about what it's like to be traumatized by a narcissistic abuser. He says, my own experiences of narcissistic abuse have left me feeling small, powerless, terrified, crazy, exasperated, enraged, and ashamed. If you've experienced it, you've experienced trauma. Do not chalk this up to a bad experience. Name it as a trauma that affects every single aspect of your existence. This is not an admission of weakness, but an honest confession. In your weakness and vulnerability is an opportunity for healing. This is what Ahab and Jezebel have done to Elijah and to the nation of Israel again and again and again. Now, if you fast forward in the story, Ahab gives us a glimmer of hope. There's a moment where he seems to have repented, and he has this short encounter with Elijah where God sends Elijah to have a brief conversation with him and demand his repentance, and he says, okay, I'll repent. But less than one chapter later, he's running God's name through the dirt again. He goes to a war that God says not to go to, and Ahab ends up getting killed by a stray arrow in his chariot. And there's a prophecy that Elijah has to deliver over Ahab's life that his blood will be licked up by wild dogs, which sounds really specific. Like, what does that mean? In Israel, it's, it's, the, it's the highest insult that a person could have if their body was not buried in the ground. That was extremely disrespectful. It was something reserved for only criminals and murderers and people who had done awful, awful stuff. It was very dehumanizing. So when God says to Ahab, your blood's gonna be licked up by wild dogs, Ahab does everything in his power to keep it from happening, yet he gets killed by an arrow. They end up washing his chariot out by this pool of water in a village, and the Bible records that dogs come and lick the blood up, and God's prophecy is fulfilled. 
Now, lest you be fooled that Ahab's character has changed, I think it's helpful that the author of Kings gives us the rest of the story after this chapter is done. But the point that I want to make to you is this. Elijah does have to return from silence and solitude to a nation that is steeped in the side effects of idol worship. That's a bad situation. He has to go back to Beersheba. He has to go back to Jezreel. He has to face the Israelites. He even has a brief run-in with Ahab, but Yahweh does not send Ahab, excuse me, Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel in order to demand their repentance personally. Elijah does not play a major role in their transformation because, spoiler alert, they don't change. They don't transform. They go to their grave, the same people, totally self-absorbed and focused that they have been their whole life. They have many opportunities, but because they are narcissistic abusers, they're not interested in change. So here's the point that I was trying to make to you last week, and maybe I can say it with greater clarity. Elijah walked down the mountain out of silence and solitude back into his circumstances. But Yahweh, who loves the marginalized and the victim and the one who has been stolen from and beaten down and dehumanized, Yahweh, who makes that clear from the opening pages of Genesis to the close of John the Apostle's revelation of Jesus Christ, the end of your Bible, that Yahweh protects Elijah and does not demand that he make himself available to further abuse by trying to shoulder the responsibility of changing his abuser. And that is the pattern for you, my friends. As you find time in silence and solitude, which will be part of recovery for you if you are getting out from underneath an abuser's influence, or if you're still working through how to distance yourself from a past influence of an abuser, as you are alone and you're with God in quiet, God will change you. He will eventually give you back your ability to open yourself to him, without flinching at his touch. Because if you haven't been abused, you don't understand how challenging this is. If you haven't had a person who has power, especially if it happened in the context of the church, whether in your marriage or from a minister or from a volunteer's perspective, if you've had someone in Jesus' name deeply damage you, you can't just waltz into God's presence and act like it didn't happen. The power that a person carries becomes a threat to you. You learn not to trust that. You learn to never let yourself get backed into a corner and to never let your, door, your back be to the door where somebody stronger than you could walk in and surprise you. So when you begin to move into God's presence in silence and solitude, your natural radar, your adaptations and the skills that you've had to learn the hard way to survive in whatever environment you escaped from, those alarms start to go off. And you go, what am I supposed to do here? Mentally, maybe I can assent that the truths of Scripture are true. I want God to be who he says he is. I want him to touch me and heal me, but I'm not sure I can handle it. I don't know how physically to keep myself in this space. Everything in me is panicking because if I hadn't panicked before, I wouldn't be alive right now. That's the lesson that our bodies and minds and spirits learn. And so this is very challenging, and I'm very aware of maybe accidentally encouraging you to walk back into a situation that you shouldn't. So I think it's worth taking the time to be clear. Will God send you back into the chaos and the conflict that you left behind when you entered silence and solitude? Yeah, yeah, I think so, but I don't think that means that God has to send you back to your abuser to be dehumanized and attacked all over again. You are free from that responsibility because God is God and you are not. And that's good news for your life. That's not bad news. That's not a removal of the power that you wish you had. That should rightly put you in the place that you need to be, one of the planets in orbit around the sun in the solar system, not having to hold the central position of all of life and all of time and attention. God will send who he needs to send, and he will do what only he can do in the life of the person who wounded you so deeply. So when we bring our wounds to Jesus in silence and solitude, when we do the hard work to engage with the thing that scares us to death, we can expect to be treated differently than the way other people who have wrongly wielded power in our lives have treated us up to that point. In fact, I think there's a great example from your Bible in the New Testament. So I'd like you to go to John chapter eight, and I wanna demonstrate to you 
a very specific interaction that I think is in your Bible, at least in part, to benefit people who have been dehumanized by the people around them. When we come to Jesus in silence and solitude, we can expect to be treated the same way that Jesus treats the woman that we're about to read about. John chapter eight, beginning in verse one. And this is just a fun little aside here. I didn't even do this on purpose. But look at what happens in verse one. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You know what he does on the Mount of Olives every single time he goes there? He's alone. He's in the quiet for multiple hours and he prays. He communes with God personally. Just interesting. Side note. Verse two. Early in the morning, so he's prayed all night, he came again to the temple. He's gonna be teaching here. People know where to find him. All the people came to him and he sat down at the temple, probably on the steps, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought before him a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, meaning throwing her into the middle of this crowd of people that's here to hear Jesus teach. They said to Jesus, Rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And why would they do that? Verse six gives us some insight. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge, some legal recourse to take against Jesus. Instead of answering them, Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. There's been much debate in church history about what he wrote. We don't know. But whatever it was was poignant and significant and personal because it worked. And as they continued to ask him, they're bombarding him. I mean, think of the, just the animal nature of the attitude that these men have. Jesus is trying to finish this writing that he's doing and they're just looming over him asking again and again and again, should we kill her? Should we stone her? Should we kill her? She's probably trying to crawl away. They're keeping her in the middle. I mean, it's this horrible situation. And Jesus is quietly, I mean, I would imagine in between their shouts, you can hear the sound of his finger in the dirt, that scratching. That's all he has to say. When he's done, he stands back up off the ground and he looks at these men and he says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead, is what Jesus says, but here's the rules. If you're gonna do it, make sure your hands are clean. And how do they respond? Once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground again, but when they heard what Jesus said, they went away, one by one. That's significant. They didn't just break their team and run. They stepped back kind of quietly, kind of subtly, hoping that nobody sees that it was them who stepped away. And hopefully nobody will ask them in their Pharisee meeting later that afternoon, hey, what was it that was unclean about you? Why did you have to not throw a stone? There's just kind of this mutual understanding that we're all guilty and we don't want to talk about it, so we're just going to fade away. Maybe you've been to a bad small group or a bad Bible study like this before where something comes up and nobody wants to talk about it and we all just kind of fade into the background so that we don't have to get real with each other, okay? Beginning with the older ones, they all leave and Jesus found himself left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said to him, no one, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. So go, and from now on, sin no more. Here's what I want you to understand. If you've been victimized by anybody in your life up to this point, even if it's ongoing now, and I hope that it's not, and if it is, please let me or an elder know. We would really like to help you out of that situation. When we come to Jesus, we don't have to worry that all he's gonna do is pile on like everybody else has. It's not gonna be this list of steps we have to take if we're willing to take responsibility. It doesn't have to be a formula to change our lives. It doesn't have to be us figuring out what's wrong with us. Why am I so weak? Why would I let somebody take advantage of me? None of that happens between Jesus and this woman. His question for her is direct and it will be the question that he will ask you in silence and solitude. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And if you're alone with God, eventually you'll have this realization. You'll look around you and realize they aren't right here right now. 
I'm living with memories. I'm living with echoes. I'm living with the past. I still hear those phrases, those words, that tone of voice. I see those fists flying at me. I'm reliving that stuff, but they're not right here with me. And as God begins to work in your mind and your spirit, your body will catch up. Those instincts that you feel that you've had to have to survive, and you probably did, will eventually change. But only Jesus, excuse me, can change you. Only Jesus can change you. And then as you look around and answer that question, I love that this question is so similar to the question God asked Elijah in 1 Kings 19. What are you doing here? Versus where are they? What, what brought you here? Is there someone condemning you? You'll look around, you'll realize that there's no one around, and you'll be able to say back to him, there's no one, Lord. Whether I could admit it before now or not, now I realize that it's just you and me, and then you can expect an answer something like this. Then neither do I condemn you. You won't be cursed from my hands because of what's happened to you. You won't be cursed from my hands because of the choices that you've made. You can be forgiven. I forgive you. Now, let's go forward together. Let's live differently. That's what Jesus means when he says, go and sin no more. He says, let's go a different way than the way that you've gone. Let's stop that cycle of decision-making that puts you back in a position to be taken advantage of again and again and again. Surely you want it, but you haven't had the willpower to do it on your own. Now, Jesus will go with you. This is the message from Jesus to those who've been abused. Those are the words that we can begin to believe, that we can begin to trust when we come to him in the quiet and we choose to embrace the silence that seems to be an echo chamber for our worst thoughts, an echo chamber for the repeated phrases and words and tone of those who've taken advantage of us. Because when we are abused, we instinctively become numb. There are many ways our bodies and minds adapt so that we can survive in an abusive environment. But each of those adaptations stays with us long after we've escaped from our abusers. They become ways of life. They become parts of our personality. Tactics and tools that allow us to never get backed into a corner, right? Or walled into a relationship that we can't escape from. We learn from our trauma, but unlike learning math or reading where we take notes in a notebook or on a laptop that we can file away on a shelf once we're done with that class, the lessons that abuse teaches are written on our psyches. They're written on our skin. They're written into our instincts. They're written into our social tools. So what is a person who has learned the hard way that people with power hurt people who are weak? What's a person like that supposed to do when they come into contact with the power and authority of God? Here's what I know about you, because you're like me, because we're people. Some of us avoid quiet, some of us avoid solitude, because we are afraid of allowing anybody all the way into our lives again. Because we've decided that we won't ever let anyone hurt us again, God is the ultimate anyone, and so he can sometimes trigger those trauma responses even when he's done nothing wrong, because he never does anything wrong. Our physical reactions, our emotional flashbacks, the memories, the instincts, even the adaptations that work to keep us safe when we're stuck, those same tools work against us as we establish new relationships, as we build healthy boundaries. We find that we're no longer keeping bad people out who want to hurt us, but sometimes we end up keeping everybody out, including those who sincerely want to help or who, or who want to know us or who want to love us. In silence and solitude, we learn to unnumb ourselves, and then slowly and with time, we become warmer we become softer, we become whole people again. Silence and solitude is the foundation for every other personal spiritual discipline. And without quiet, without being alone by choice, we will not ever build the practices that will change our minds and change our habits toward the lifestyle of Jesus. By going away to the wilderness, to a desolate place, by silencing our mouths and our inner monologues, we become spiritually awake. We regain spiritual sensitivity to God and to each other. And this is where typically the scar tissue of abuse has grown the thickest, and it is the place that we sometimes dread that God will go, but it is also the place where God can heal us and where we will regain some of the sensitivity that was crushed out of us by our abusers. 
So I want to make sure, because there's a high percentage of us, whether we care to acknowledge it or not, in the room who've lived through some version of this, and like it or not, most protective parent in the world or not, some of our children, unfortunately, will be victimized at some point. We've got to understand that these practices are not just for people who have it all together. My goal as your pastor, as your preacher today, is not to help you get a new hobby with Jesus. I don't want you to just find a way to get away, have a little fun, see if God brings anything up, and then reintegrate. This is the hardest soul-level work that you will ever do, but it is effective. You can change. It's where we started in March with this whole series. Our models of discipleship in the evangelical church up to this moment have not worked for us. We have stayed the same. We have changed our behavior. We've changed some of our ideas. We've learned which translation of the Bible is cool and which one's not and how to dress at church and whether Christians should or shouldn't cuss or should or shouldn't watch pornography. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit about what we should and shouldn't do, and that's fine. But we have not learned to go the way of Jesus that forces us into ourselves, into our inner life, into reality. This is going to be hard. And if it's not hard for you, it's going to be hard for somebody that you know, and we have to understand that. But it's worth it, my friends. When you follow Jesus, he doesn't lead you into death. He won't. He never has. He leads you into life. And he says, if you will go with him, you will find life that is abundant, probably the kind of life that you have told yourself is lost to you, that a person like you who's lived through what you've lived through can never have again. Jesus says it's available. And he's offering it to you. So I want to put a capstone on this series by just sharing with you quickly, this is the closest I can get to a summary of where we've been in these five weeks, six actions that are available to you in silence and solitude. Consider this the last commercial you're going to hear about getting alone with God uh, until it naturally comes up in the scriptures again. I'm going to run through these quickly. We're going to spend two minutes together in the quiet, and then we're going to be done so that you know where we're headed. The first is this. If you're taking notes, I recommend that you write one or two of these down, the ones that sort of stick out to you, or feel free at the end to just snap a picture when we're finished of all six on the screen. The first thing that's available to us in the quiet is that we can regain a listening posture. For you and I, we don't have this. We have a speaking posture. We have an attacking posture. We have an aggressive posture. Uh, Oftentimes in conversation, we watch the other person's mouth to see the instant when their lips stop moving so we can jump in with our own thought and idea. And as Christians, we're meant to be people who take in far more than we put back out again. We're meant to be listening, aware, sensing, feeling, patient, kind. That's the presence of Jesus in our lives. In the quiet, we discover what it is that we are carrying, and maybe this is what has kept us away from the quiet for so long, is we have to name and face the pain and the sorrow, the grief and the stress that that we carry around on our shoulders everywhere that we go. In the quiet, we find a way to reconnect with our past. We begin to find clarity of echoes and images, phrases and memories that come to our mind now and again. Maybe there's a behavior pattern in your life every time that your adult parents are in town. You freak out and revert to 16-year-old you. Or when you have to go back home, wherever that is, and spend the night in your childhood bedroom, weird memories and stuff come to the surface. There's probably some unresolved issues there. As we sit with God in the quiet, he will give us the tools and the insight that we need to begin to settle some of that stuff. He wants it settled. I promise you, he's not trying to get you to tiptoe through another Thanksgiving in Jesus' name. He would like to restore and reconcile your relationship with your family. And that starts by reconnecting with your past. In the quiet, we find out who we really are. I want to read you this quote from A.W. Tozer, who was a great pastor in Chicago in the last hundred years. He said this, he said, Retire from the world each day to a private spot. Even if it only be the bedroom, he says, For a while I retreated to the furnace room for want of a better place. I guess nobody thought to look in the furnace room to find him. He says, stay in the secret place, and listen to this, this is that after image fading away, until the surrounding noises begin to fade out of your heart, not your ears, your heart. Let it go. It will fade. 
Give yourself to God and then be what and who you are. Be your true self with no regard to what others think. Learn to pray inwardly every moment. Call home your roving thoughts and gaze on Christ with the eyes of your soul. That's available to you. Number five, in the quiet we gain a healthy detachment. Maybe you don't know that you need this. We should have a healthy level of detachment from needing anybody or anything to do for us what only God can do. If we're still relying on a relationship or a career or an idea or some future dream that we have to give us identity or freedom, justice, satisfaction, meaning, or hope, those six longings that we've been talking about when we're in the book of Mark, we're not going to find them anywhere else. And so as we sit with God and he meets those needs, we begin to go, okay, I can go to work on Monday and I don't need my identity to be tied up there. And I've been like working as hard as I can to try to not make that happen, but now something's just changed in me. God's just changed my priorities. That will happen for you in silence and solitude. Then finally, in the quiet, we become spiritually sensitive. And that's what we're talking about today. Dallas Willard said this in The Spirit of the Disciplines. He said, in silence and solitude, you will discover incredibly good things. One is that you have a soul. Another, that God is near and that the universe is brimming with goodness. And every pessimist rolled their eyes, right? Another, that others are not as bad as you often think. But, and catch this, church, don't try to discover these things or you won't. You'll just be busy and you'll just find more of your own busyness. Silence and solitude is your way to separate from the breakneck pace of the world that you live in and be with the eternal God, the God that you will spend all of the rest of forever with. He's near at hand. His kingdom has come. Jesus has opened the way to you and he wants that relationship. He wants to know you and to be known by you. So that's the offer. You can try to change on your own. You can spend the rest of your life doing that without Jesus, or you can bring yourself in whatever condition it's actually in to Jesus, and you can surrender it to him, and he will change you. It's all he's ever done for people. It's the thing that he's best at. So we're gonna share together two minutes of silence as we close. As we do that, we're gonna leave these six actions up on the screen today. And maybe as you're in silence, you need to just open yourself to maybe one of these six things is the work that God wants to do in your life. Maybe not. Maybe this has nothing to do with you at all today. I don't know. I don't need you to try to manipulate your emotions to a point where you feel like you can connect with one of these things. But if one jumped out at you right away, this is your opportunity to just sort of hold that in between you and God. Create a little space in your heart and your mind and sit with those things, okay? We're gonna be quiet for two minutes and then I'm gonna pray for us. Your 120 seconds of silence begins now.
Father, we're open to you. We're available to be sent, to be changed, to be addressed or called out. God, we want to become like Christ. We want to be a part of the work of your church to reconcile people to you for your glory in your name, God. Uh, We have done a lot, most of us, in our own power, by our own will, and it's gotten us a little ways, but it hasn't gotten us all the way. And so we ask for humility, we ask for trust, God, that as we try to navigate a deeper and more meaningful relationship with you, you would give us great patience with ourselves and grace with ourselves and and the people that are around us. Um, God, that you would teach us, those of us who are parents, how to model this for our children, those of us who find ourselves in positions of leadership, God, give us the the humility to admit where this has been a challenge or where this hasn't stuck or clicked like we thought it might have. God, these practices, and we know that you know this, these practices are only as good as they get us to you. So I pray that that would be the legacy of our time in your word across these five weeks. That would be a marked difference in the life of this church, that we would be people who don't just talk about Jesus, sing about Jesus, and think about him for 90 minutes a week, but that we would be people who go with Jesus every day, as close to every minute as we can. We love you, God. We trust you. We give you our lives, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.